0: Welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Thomas Kortenbeek. So Thomas works with the Danish athletic team, specifically with jumpers, and he is a lecturer at Aarhus University in Denmark, which makes him the perfect person today to discuss how you can improve jumping performance in any given sport. So without further ado, it's time to welcome Thomas onto the show. So Thomas, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here.
1: Well, thank you very much, Matt. It's definitely my pleasure as well.
0: Uh, Thank you for joining. So can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been
1: up to until now? Sure. Um, Well, as my accent has probably already revealed, um, English is not my native tongue. Uh, I'm a Danish coach. I currently hold a position within the Danish Athletic Federation as an uh, assistant jumps coach uh, with the responsibility of high jump in particular. I also currently hold a position uh, uh, at the section of sports science at Aarhus University. Uh, I solely teach there. I don't do any research. And last but not least, I have my own business uh, called Dynform, and uh, that's my Instagram handle as well. Um and I work as a strength and conditioning coach, uh, athletic trainer uh, uh, in that business with uh, different uh, team, professional team sport athletes and uh, a few Olympians as well.
0: And that's, uh, that's a super interesting page to check out. So we'll put that in the show notes as well to make sure that people can follow you because you're sharing some absolutely fantastic content there. So first things first, we want to j- dive into jumping and uh, what that involves. So what does jumping involve?
1: And how does it then differ between different sports? Um, well, from a biomechanics perspective, I guess the brief and concise answer would be that in, it, it involves projecting our body off the ground. And uh, and we can obviously do that in numerous ways and, and with different purposes. So we can jump for maximal height, like we would see in the high jump in certain plays, in volleyball, in team handball, uh, various types of uh, dunking, uh, even in football where I, I assume a player would have an advantage if he manages manages to jump higher than his direct opponent in, in, in a heading duel. Uh, we can also jump for maximal length like seen in the in the long jump or the triple jump. Uh, we probably rarely see jumps for pure maximal length in, in the more complex sports, but uh, within uh, team handball, we do have certain types of jumps that uh, wings would utilize to, to jump find the goal zone or or the crease. Uh, but that's that's like uh, that's both jumping for height and and length. Uh, and and I guess the last type of jump I can. I can come to think of is, is a jump that's not necessarily jumping for maximal height or maximal length. It could be jumping to reach a a certain height as fast as possible. Uh, So that could be seen uh, in a quick attack in volleyball uh, as well as different types of jumps seen in, in in football and basketball and handball as well. Uh, so so the various types of jumping in sports obviously differ in purpose of the jump, but they could also differ in in how they're influenced by the constraints imposed on the athletes. So, so to give you an example, in athletics, uh, only single leg takeoffs are allowed, so, so, so that's written in the rules. Uh, in team sport a uh, complex sport uh, in general, athletes aren't solely constrained by the rules, but also – by the actions of the opponents, by their teammates, their chosen tactics, even by the type of jump, which is optimal in the given context.
0: And I imagine when we look at that, that bilateral jump, right? Like that doesn't happen very often in, in sport because unless you're standing still, it's yeah. not really very often seen in that, that complex situation, right? Most of the time you're going to get some kind of run up and you're probably going to go off of one leg. Um, so. Is, is there a, a, a reason then that we should be ch- uh, chasing those kind of uh, jumps in training do we do we need to train that
1: well if you if you if you see them in the in the sports you need to improve it, it could be basketball you, you could have a standing jump you could also have a, a double leg takeoff uh, from an approach Uh the, the advantage of that would be that you minimize rotation after takeoff, and you probably don't want too much rotation after takeoff in the complex sports. Uh, you would see it in, in volleyball as well. You would have a, a double leg takeoff also from an approach. Uh, on the other hand, in, in high jump, uh, we, we definitely want, uh, obviously, to displace our center of mass vertically as much as possible, but we also want rotation. Uh, so, so that would favor the, the single leg takeoff.
0: Um, yeah. Absolutely. Fantastic. So we do need to then train
1: both, but
0: then when we're going to start to train these things, how do we start to categorize different jumps? Because we've obviously just gone through uh, a single leg and a double leg takeoff. How are we going to make a, a categorized system so that later we know how to train things in a, in a structured and
1: ordered way? Oh, that's a good question, Matt. Um, I, I guess there are numerous, numerous ways to, to categorize jumping, but I would say one plausible way could be to initially categorize by, by general purpose. So, so we could categorize with a purpose to understand how specific certain exercise, uh, exercises are to the jumps we need to improve in the primary sport. So basically to understand how much transfer can we expect Uh, so so with that approach it would be meaningful to analyze if the jumps performed in the primary sport or either single leg or double leg takeoffs as well as the purpose of these jumps are we jumping for height are we jumping for length or to reach a certain height as fast as possible as mentioned earlier we could analyze possible constraints put on the athlete to perform the jump and, and maybe even the most important how momentum or takeoff velocity of the jumpers created. So, so some jumpers are, for example, extremely skilled in converting a large horizontal momentum created uh, by, uh, by an approach to a, to a very high vertical momentum. And these exact jumpers, and that's really interesting, could be very mediocre in a standing car movement jump where they're constrained by how much momentum they can actually build up to load the system. Uh, and, and, and I think I shared an example of that a, a year ago or so, where I had the Danish record holder, uh, in high jump, Janne Clausen perform a kind movement jump. And I compared that to his ability to perform a unilateral takeoff. And it was just from a short approach. <laughs> and the difference in performance was just vast. <laughs> uh, so, so, so that's, that's one way of uh, categorizing. And, and, and another category could be, uh, based on understanding training load from jumps. Uh, So in that context, the purpose would be getting an insight into the load uh, various jumps exert on athletes. So this would obviously be useful when prescribing jumps for athletes. Um, And in this instance, I would dive into factors like uh, volume. Uh, So how many jumps do we have and how many landings do we have as well? Uh, the surface inclination, are we jumping on a flat surface, on an upwards or downwards? Um, the type of surface, are we jumping on concrete versus sand or grass? Uh, the specific motor skill or technique utilized by the athlete, uh, are they biased to, towards a certain technique? Uh, even the intent of the athlete in these exercises, and that's obviously closely related to training intensity. Uh, So it could probably also make sense to analyze how the load is being distributed between different joints in the kinetic chain. So all the way from the foot to the trunk, Uh, to give you an example, uh, pogo jumps, for example, obviously challenges the ankle joint to a much larger extent than the kind of movement jumps. And I believe we need to consider that when we're prescribing exercises within a week. So, from my standpoint, a jump is certainly not just a jump, and I would claim it to be quite arbitrary to solely measure training load based on amount of jumps on a weekly basis.
0: I think that's that's super interesting. And then, when you look at your practice, do you do you then start to use that in your planning then to look at, for example, how uh, how many um, ankle-specific contacts there would be, how many um, hip or knee dominant contacts that might be? Do you, is that something you're you're looking at on a daily basis? Or is it
1: something that you just kind of consider as you're you're making a program? Definitely on a daily basis. And I would also do it when when I'm writing a weekly program. I would uh, have all these factors in mind when it could be uh, one day we would do a formal technique and high jump. Uh, which is uh, obviously you do use your your ankle joint and you need to have a lot of ankle stiffness there, but but it's it's mainly your your knee and hip joint uh, that's being exhausted or fatigued. So so the next day we could easily do some lower intensity uh, pogo jumps, ankle dominated types of jumps. Uh, so yeah, definitely I I do consider that.
0: I think that's a a super interesting takeaway as well for a lot of coaches who might want to increase uh, jump height or or use plyometrics for example to to do so but actually could distribute that training load slightly differently and maybe get some uh, some improvement in the effect of the training so that's super interesting Um, when we're looking at unilateral jumping specifically. Um, yeah. How do we go about improving that? Because I think that's probably one of the most interesting things, which is which is underused a lot of the time. You see a lot of people, for example, jumping with one leg onto a box and maybe landing off of a box on one leg, but yeah. that's not necessarily very specific to the sport. So, how can we go about improving our unilateral jumping so that we can improve our sport performance?
1: Oh, how much time do you have, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> we've got we've got like ten to fifteen minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, well you know I, I'm, I'm a simple coach and, and and i guess the simple and obvious answer to that question is to perform unilateral jumping exercises and with a clear technical focus that 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 hopefully mimics the the, the model you want to optimize in your primary sport and, and i would actually claim for numerous team sport athletes that would present an adequate stimulus to improve performance uh so so that's for the uh, more complex team sport athletes, and in terms of the more close skill sports like like athletics and and maybe even dunking uh, contests, I would claim it's slightly more complex. So so in that context, it sometimes feels like I'm some, I'm I'm playing the little detective. So as a coach, I'm constantly trying to figure out in which specific area my jumpers need to improve to end up with a performance enhancement. So do they need to improve technically in a certain phase of the jump or do we need to improve an athlete's physical capacity maybe maybe even just in a specific part of the kinetic chain so so and when I present it as something binary and when I talk about it I realize that it obviously isn't because what optimal optimal technique is is closely linked to an athlete's physical characteristics so for example Can my athlete benefit from an increased approach speed speed, or would he simply collapse in the takeoff? And and similar to that, the development of these physical characteristics of an athlete will obviously also be influenced by the utilized technique. So so they're just very close skills. And in trying to identify which area to focus, focus on as a coach, I obviously personally do a lot of video analysis and, and formal testing and significantly more with my high jumpers where, where jump ability is obviously a primary key performance indicator and to a much lesser degree with my team sport athletes where jump ability is just it's just a small part of the puzzle i obviously love jump solos, so i would love to teach them to jump but we need to consider that so for example i would analyze my high jumpers ability to displace the center of mass in the unilateral takeoff like the it could be like the we often do the jump and reach from a, a fixed approach. so so that's what does that mean
0: what does the jump and reach uh, mean in that sense?
1: So that's like uh, do, do they call it uh, a vertex it's it's just you have a unilateral take you have an approach you have a unilateral takeoff and then you jump as high as you can to reach uh, uh, it's called uh, the equipment I have it's, it's called a yardstick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's, it's just it's just a,
0: a unilateral jump with a run up to to reach something as high as you can, basically.
1: Exactly, and it's a straight run up. So so for a high jump, it's it's really really simple type of jump. Uh, jump. It's a technical, significantly easier jump than the high jump. So if they if they end up being able to displace the center of mass significantly higher in the jump and reach, then we would see in the jump takeoff that would be somewhat of a clear indication that they have the necessary physical capacity but instead need to improve their technical skill in the high jump and on the other hand if a jumper seems to be technically quite efficient I would obviously focus on improving his physical uh, capabilities and maybe even trying to figure out if it's just part of the kinetic chain that needs to be improved and we have tests for that as well. And what kind of tests would you then uh, use in that instance? So, so as as a as a general rule, rule we would do the uh, a RSI test, a continuous RSI test where they jump twelve continuous jumps, and we'll take the jumps in the middle and calculate the average of their RSI. So that's a good measure of their ankle stiffness. So that's to figure out what's the level of this athlete uh, in their ankle stiffness. And then we would do, it could be an isometric mid thigh I get a really good picture just from watching them in their gym based exercises. So how strong, how, how strong are they in their knee extensors and the hip extensors as well? So it's basically just to some, some formal testing, but also the general picture you, you get from training them on a daily basis. I think mean,
0: that's super interesting. It's nice to see how then you can you can break that down and work through a, a process as such to go through yeah. do they have the physical capabilities um, in their body as a whole and then break that down into the individual uh, joints or individual physical qualities that you need in specific areas to make sure that you're actually pinpointing the specific adaptation which is going to make them better. So that's super interesting. Um, and you mentioned uh, team sports as well, right, which are chaotic. Um, yeah if uh yeah so <laughs> that's another another kettle of fish entirely um if if you're then looking at team sports and you want to improve your jump height what do you think are the key things that need to be focused on because the level of detail which you've just described for uh someone in athletics might not necessarily be needed for a team sport so what do you think are the key things for those different sports
1: i completely agree and and actually I believe the first question we should ask ourselves in that context is, should we actually train jumping for chaos team sports, like in a formal manner? Or more precisely, what's the cost-benefit of training jump for a given team sport athlete? So so as, as I mentioned earlier, jump ability is just one factor affecting team performance in complex sports. So there are also factors like the technical level in their primary sport, uh, I guess it's termed as playing intelligence, like the ability to predict and to percept and react on certain situations, uh, tactics, understanding your teammates preferred movement patterns, uh, ability to change direction, acceler- ex- uh, acceleration, et cetera, et cetera. So I could all, go on with that. So just numerous factors affecting performance and result. So if we accept that all these factors influence performance, we probably first need to analyze which factor is the lowest hanging fruit. So with a given effort, where do we believe we can find the largest improvement in performance? So that should always, I believe, be the first question in, in any context, because we don't have an infin- infinity amount of time to train. And we're further limited by like the recovery of our players and a potentially increased risk. So, so in the, in the context of, let's say a handball team, which I'm, I'm currently working with, when I sit down with the rest, rest of the coaching team and, and perform and perform this cost benefit analysis, it often comes down to the conclusion. Yes, we do indeed actually believe we can improve that individual players or maybe even the whole team's jumping ability, but we choose to prioritize something else where the room for improvement is larger relative to the cost the cost being either time or increased injury risk. Um, so that obviously doesn't mean that we never perform any formal jumping. We, we definitely do off-season and pre-season. Um, but in-season, we typically place the jump training in the warm-up uh, why would you? We would typically use a modality like stair jumps, uh, mainly to minimise the landing impact, uh, so it doesn't cost too much in in in, in recovery, and it doesn't impact their uh, following training session in their primary sport as well, um, and and that's mainly because the players rarely tolerate tolerate much additional high impact training. So so besides that what they're actually exposed to in the primary sport. and often the other way around I actually need to work on uh, work a lot on simply maintaining tendon resilience just in order for the players to tolerate tolerate uh, training their primary sport. So yeah I, I guess that probably didn't really answer your initial question. I just asked to I, I just decided to ask another one <laughs> uh, So sorry about that but but I can ask your initial question uh if you want me to no i think you've you've just gone through a fantastic
0: thought process so that's um that's not necessary as such i think when um when you talk through that that kind of process it makes it pretty clear as to where the priorities need to lie um and of course how you would uh you would implement that as well so i think that's uh, super interesting and before we wrap up what i want to look at is um yeah, I've got, I've got two, two more things. So what we want, want to look at is how you would look at gym performance. And then we're going to sum this all up by yeah. looking at how you would then put this into a total uh, training package for a younger athlete. So before we get to the summary, how do you then work in the gym to improve your jumping performance?
1: Well, I guess there are two approaches to that. Uh, we can perform gym based exercises with a goal of achieving a direct, a direct positive transfer to jumping ability or we can perform gym based exercises with a purpose of increasing tissue resilience and the latter is uh, universally right to do so so the indirect approach of increasing tissue resiliency is is more or less a universal sound approach for all athletes independent independent of their level and age uh, so on the other hand, the amount of gym-based exercises we can expect a positive transfer from is indeed dependent on the on the physical level. So so the lower the level of the athlete, the wider the spectrum of exercises that can induce a jump performance enhancement. Uh, so I, I may be putting my hands in a bee's nest here, but but as an example the regular full range of motion squat would likely be able to induce a performance enhancement in performance enhancement, sorry about that, in a novice athlete's single leg jump from an approach, while the exact same exercise would have no positive impact on the elite athlete's ability. Uh, So so this is, again, contextual to the specific jump type we're trying to improve. So the elite athlete could possibly still expect a positive transfer to, let's say, a standing counter movement jump by increasing their full range of motion squat performance. So whether or not we can expect a direct transfer to to jump performance uh, of our gym-based exercises obviously depends not only on the training status, but also on the type of jump we're trying to improve. So the more time we have to produce an impulse, so impulse being a change in momentum in the takeoff of a jump, the more likely it is we can expect to actually get a direct Transfer from the more conventional based exercises, and if I have the time to give you an example, if if, if you have a high relative strength in in your conventional power cleans, um, you would probably also perform quite well in your kind of movement jump. But on the other side, uh, and that's that's just my experience. There's a significantly weaker correlation between relatively relative strength in in the power clean. And performance in jumps that high, that demands high reactive strength in a short amount of time. So when there's a constraint of time uh, we have available to create a large impulse, it's significantly more difficult to get a direct transfer from our gym-based exercises. Uh, so we then need to move on to probably more the advanced exercises in the gym, like super maximal eccentric uh, flywheel exercises, could be like the reactive hang power clean. So a derivative of the, the conventional power clean, heavy ISOs. And, and, and they should, in my opinion, at least all be performed at angles uh, or range of motion specific to the jump we're trying to improve and when getting at that level it it just gets increasingly increasingly important how we paradise these types of exercises to allow adequate recovery so i can't make my high jumpers my elite high jumpers perform heavy super maximal eccentrics in the same period as they as they are doing uh, high intensity jumping
0: and that's a, a super interesting take on things as well because it means that as uh, the quality of the athlete or the quality of their, their jumping ability increases, then there needs to be far more care and attention to what actually happens in that training and the training, uh, block or the training, uh, period as a year or as a whole. Um, so that's a really Definitely. interesting take on things. Um, and when we put all of this together, how would you then go about training, uh, let's say a relatively young athlete instead of a, a really high level athlete? How could a young athlete then go about improving their jumping height in any given sport?
1: Um, well, I think in general terms, I, w- I would focus a lot on building tissue resiliency and, and at the same time expose the athlete to a large variety of jumps. So, uh, and, and basically other types of movements, movements for that matter. So, so primarily so they aren't stressed in a very monotonous way too early in their career. So I would let them perform skippings, uh, stair jumps, hill jumps, jumps in bare feet, uh, even resistance jumps, jumps on surf surfaces. Uh, all co- Yeah, it's just the creativity that's the limiting factor here. So I, I would let them jump, so jump also in different planes, so lateral jumps as well, and, and basically ge- generally challenge their motor program, programming skills. But at the same time, I would still allow them to perform long jump from a full run-up if that's a favorite type of jump. Uh, So, so this and that may actually be controversial to some coaches, but I I don't think we should be so afraid of intensity for younger athletes, because to a large extent, intensity is auto-regulated. So, when that is said, we should definitely be. Be more careful with volume and monotony of the high intensity jump. So it's not just I wouldn't just let my eight year old son uh, do full approach long jump uh, every day. <laughs> yeah. I would def, I would definitely allow him to do it if he loves to do it. I'm not afraid of it. I would I would let him I would let him jump down from a tree. So I would I would actually allow him to do relative high intensity jumping also before he's able to do two times body weight squat. and
0: as a very quick uh side note on that um obviously a two times bodyweight squat for an eight-year-old might be a bit ridiculous yeah um but um when when you're then programming plyometrics uh, for athletes is relative strength in for example a back squat something which you're going to be looking at as a as a key baseline or do you
1: not worry about that too much i don't worry about that at all so so I, i like if if I were if I were to teach a squat, I wouldn't put uh, I wouldn't put a hundred kilos on for a novice athlete. I would I would take into consideration their current level and the same go the same principle goes with plyometrics. So I wouldn't put the hurdles on one hundred and seven centimeters and then ask them to do to do hurdle hops. I would do the lower intensity, especially if I turn up the volume. So I would start out doing. Uh, different types of jumps on on a soft surface maybe jumping on stairs to minimize the landing impact and so on so it's it's basically just to to prescribe the intent the 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 exercises that that fits the current athlete i think that's uh, some excellent advice so massive thanks for your time today
0: thomas it's been a pleasure talking i've really enjoyed this one and uh yeah i look forward to catching up with you soon
1: well thank you very much matt
0: thank you very much buddy cheers and that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to Thomas for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of the Coach Academy. Now, the Coach Academy is a series of lectures broken down into bite-sized chunks. So if you've enjoyed today's podcast on jumping, there are some excellent lectures in there which can help improve jumping performance. For example, the reactive strength index lecture. So if you've enjoyed today's podcast, you can get that completely for free in the show notes. And all you have to do is click that link in just a few seconds time. And if you have enjoyed today's podcast, it would be fantastic if you could recommend it to a friend, a colleague, or an athlete. That means that we can spread the good word of the podcast, and of course, that you can help those around you. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.